morning. You guys doing well? This has been the best weekend ever. My wife's gone on that women's retreat. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. How many guys have, uh, have gals that are away at the women's retreat? Okay. How many are having the best weekend ever? Woo! Yep, I'll be glad when my wife gets back. And I know they're having a great time. There's a few. There, you know, it's interesting. One more time. How many guys have uh, gals up uh, up north? Okay, cool. Probably a few guys still in the rack. And uh, I don't mean tied up. I'm just meaning maybe still in bed. Or if they had kids, though, they're up. Maybe they couldn't make it here. It's really interesting how much we depend upon our wives. How many have found that to be true? Oh, my goodness. Good thing you raised your hand because cameras are on you right now. We'll be reporting back to your wives. How many absolutely love this time of the year, the heat, the heat? Show of hands. Like four people in here. And did you see who raised their hand? Go ahead. Those that are sitting around them uh, that didn't raise your hand, check to make sure that they don't have heat exhaustion or heat stroke, okay? It's pretty crazy hot, but uh, oh well. That's, uh, we live here and that's what it is at this time of the year. Good to have you with us. This is our How It Changes Everything teaching series, How It Changes Everything. We're working our way through the book of Acts, how it, how the cross changes everything in our life, because that's really what the book of Acts is all about. Not so much that you get a hold of the cross, but that it gets a hold of you, all that Jesus Christ has done for us. We're uh, studying in Acts chapter 13 is where we are. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And we're titling this weekend's message, The Amazing Race. I want to start off by asking you a question. What is the most exciting, rewarding, adventuresome thing you have ever done? Don't answer out loud, but think about that just for a minute. Let me ask that once again. What is the most exciting, rewarding, adventuresome thing you've ever done? I have a a list. And whatever your answer might be, even if it were to be on the Amazing Race reality television game show, how many are familiar with that? Maybe have heard about it or watched it or seen uh, videos of it, even if it were that or any other uh, number of things, I will guarantee you this, whatever that list might be, it would not even come close to the exciting, rewarding, adventuresome race that every Christian has been called to. <laughs> I'm convinced of that. And I've done a lot of, lot of things. I'm an old guy and ha- have had a lot of exciting, adventuresome things that I've had a chance to do in my life. And nothing, absolutely nothing compares to the life that Christ invites us to live and to experience. Let me bring you up to speed here where we are. Key verse to the book of Acts is what? Anybody know or remember? It's the first chapter, verse 8, and it says, You will receive power. In fact, Jesus was with his disciples. He resurrected from the grave. He was with his disciples for 40 days, and he talks to them about the kingdom. And then he says, I want you to hang out in Jerusalem because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my what? Witnesses. The Greek word is martyr. It's pretty interesting. Here's what he's saying. And you can see, you can see why this would affect him. If you've encountered the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you will never be the same. You're no longer suited for a normal life. And this is what he's saying. And and, and to top that, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you will be so intoxicated, so captivated by my love, by my grace, that you will be willing to... if if necessary, die for me in proclaiming this message to the world. That you will be so 
captivated, intoxicated by my work and my power and my Holy Spirit in you. And then it kind of gives us kind of really the pattern of of how the book goes. He says, you will be my witnesses, you will be my martyrs in, where does it start? Jerusalem, which is where they live. Jerusalem, and then it goes to Judea, kind of their backyard, kind of neighboring. And then it said Samaritan, that's cross-cultural. And then it goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in fact, the book can be divided up just like that. And so in Acts chapter 1 all the way to... Acts chapter 8, verse 4, we see them witness in Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 8, verse 5, they didn't get out of Jerusalem because, I mean, who wouldn't stay in Jerusalem? Because there was a lot of exciting things happening. But what did God bring to them to get them to start scattering eventually to go out to the world? What did he do? Anybody remember? He brought persecution. He brought suffering. He brought difficulty. And so what we have, this transition begin to take place in Acts chapter 8, verse 5. They begin to scatter, and so they go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And now as we work to chapter 13, we now get into the last section of the book where they begin to go into the world. They witness to the ends of the world, and in particular it is the Apostle Paul, Barnabas, and his missionary team. And what we are reading today is... is, uh, Paul's and Barnabas, Mark, and then you're going to see other team members come in there. But this is his first of three missionary journeys. And what we're going to see in his life, the the principles of his life in this great, amazing race that he is on, racing to the end of his life to try to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, we see a lot of parallels that we can obviously apply to to our own lives. And so this is where we're headed, the amazing race because of God's amazing grace and because of what he's, what he's done in our lives. What I'd like to do this morning is I want to pray as we begin, and then we'll dive into our study. I'm going to pray Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, which is a phenomenal a couple of verses that talk about this race that you and I are on. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. Let's go before the throne of grace once again. God, we are delighted to be here today. We thank you for your amazing grace that has... Uh, Put us on this amazing race. As it says in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and we see that that Paul and Barnabas and Mark and, and the other team members, as they go out into the world, but we know that they are witnesses, they are a cloud of witnesses that are, in essence, through your words here in the study of the book of Acts, they, they, are, they are cheering us on. So, God, we pray that as we continue our study through the book of Acts, let us... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, God. Help us to do that. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This amazing race. Looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. May we get bigger glimpses of Jesus this morning. Who for the joy that was set before Him... The joy of of bringing us to the Father. The joy of adding us to His family. Endured the cross, despising the shame. And and, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God right now, interceding for us. What an amazing picture that is. God, may the reality of all that Jesus Christ has done for us sink deep into our hearts and revolutionize our lives this morning as we continue on this amazing race that you have set before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Let's take a look at this, the amazing race. We're going to look at the different 
aspects to this amazing race. We'll begin reading. You'll notice we're just going to work through the text little by little. First three verses actually have four points because there's a lot there. And then we'll, we'll kind of work our way through the rest of the text. We'll spend most of the time just in those first three verses. The text actually begins in verse 25 of chapter 12. Let me read that. It's not up on the screen. It should be there uh, in your Bible. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now we head into the section we're looking at. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... Notice this, the context, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to continue to work through this text. But let me give you four ideas here as it relates to the amazing race. Here's the first one. You have been put on earth to know God and to make him known through your unique, one-of-a-kind, original contribution. And where in the world did you get that, Pastor Ray, from those first three verses? Well, look at verse 1. There's a list of names. That list of names that we read are really interesting if you dive into them. We're not going to take out time to identify each person that's there. But the list of names represent this multicultural, multi-class group of people who were part of the early church. And these were early church leaders. Here's the point is that unity with diversity is a part of the beauty of Christianity that brings greater creativity and comprehensiveness in the meeting of needs within Christian community, but also in, in the culture. So, so unity with diversity. I like what uh, D.A. Carson said from his book, Love in Hard Places. He says, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus and owe Him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Isn't that interesting? See, the power of God's love, His love is so powerful that you will love people that otherwise outside of these walls would be your enemies. Isn't that amazing? So my question would be, do you, do you see, have you had that kind of an experience with Christ? Because that's, that's normal Christianity. Is that people that you would otherwise be antagonistic towards, you love. And you would be even willing to lay your life down for, for them. That, that sound, almost sounds outrageous. But that's how the cross rocks your world. See, so many people know about the cross of Jesus, and they can say, oh yeah, Jesus died for me. And, and they might have a kind of a, just a bit of a, a grasp on it, but it doesn't have a grasp on them. It hasn't rocked their world. See, that's Christianity. And you can tell... To the degree you're living in the reality of all that Jesus Christ has done for you by how you relate to others in your life. And so that's the fascinating beauty of the cross and of the church. 
that, that because of this experience, this from death to life experience that we've experienced, that becomes the common denominator of our lives that, that supersedes every other common denominator or any bit of antagonism or, or differences in our life. Yeah, there's diversity. We all come from different backgrounds. That's what's so fascinating. If you ever get involved in some of our small groups, wow, the broad spectrum of backgrounds and, and people groups that are represented here. It's amazing. It's only by God's grace that, that you could have that begin to take place. But there's something even beyond that, that idea, is that within this... Uh, within this unity with diversity, within that diversity, that there is unique, one-of-a-kind, original contribution from each, each part, each person. You've been put on earth to know God and to make Him known through your unique, one-of-a-kind, original contribution. There's an Old Testament book that uh, I've always been fascinated by. I've studied it a couple of different times, and we're going to probably study it sometime here I was thinking about maybe this next year. It's the book of Esther. How many have ever read through the book of Esther? Interesting book. It's, it's a book about the sovereignty of God, and yet there's not one mention of God in that book. <laughs> God's never mentioned. But the sovereignty of God is about his providential hand. And what's interesting, it's about this, this gal. It's a Jewish gal by the, name of, by the name of Esther who's raised up into a position of prominence as a queen. And there's a statement that's made by... Um, by her cousin Mordecai in Esther 4.14 that has just kind of always bounced around in my heart and soul. And he says to her, for such a time as this, you have been raised to this prominent position. This is not by happenstance. This isn't by accident. Because you see, there was this guy by the name of Haman who was antagonistic towards the Jews. He was trying to wipe out the Jews. And so God raised up Esther, queen, And so she was able to influence the king to keep from wiping out the Jews. And so it was for such a time as this, she was able to bring salvation to the nation. And she is a picture of Jesus, but she's also a picture of what God has called us to do. And so I I can say today, for such a time as this, for such a time as this, you are here at Desert Breeze. For such a time as this, you, are, you were born into your home and, and God has surrounded you with, with the people within your life. For such a time as this, you live in the neighborhood that you live in because God has orchestrated that by His divine design. For such a time as this, God wants you to live your life in such a way that you would bring salvation, that, that your life would point to the Savior, that your life would give glory to God. I mean, that's one of those statements. It's like, oh my goodness, that applies to all of us. There is no happenstance to your life. God is working in your life. And if you've called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whoo, my goodness, look out. He's working in your life. It doesn't matter where you are or what you do. For such a time as this, He loves you. He's working in your life. See, when you begin to embrace that, it changes the way that you do life. It's no, you just don't punch the clock anymore. Punch the clock, punch out, go home, watch TV, go to bed, get up, punch in, punch out, go home, watch TV, go to bed, get up, punch in, punch out. I mean, you don't do that. I mean, you're on a, you're on a mission for God. 
I mean, it's just totally different. That's just it's powerful. Proverbs 139, it uses this language, 14. It actually talks about how God... Now think about this. God was involved in your mother's womb. You almost get the idea that his hands were shaping you. It uses that kind of language. And we use an acronym in our game of life. It's, it's the word shape. And we help people go through this process and how God has just uniquely shaped each one of us. And we use the, the, as an acronym, and the word S means spiritual gift. That God has given you some specific spiritual gifts. And, and the H stands for your heart, your passions, your likes and your dislikes. And the A stands for your abilities. You have special abilities. And P is for personality. And E is for life experiences. Did you know that the experiences that you go through in life are not just by happenstance, but God has allowed those in your life to shape you in such a way so that your life can have an impact on others? That the comfort that you receive in God through your difficulties, whatever they might be. And by the way, I was thinking about that this morning in the first service, and I looked out over the audience, and I saw a young man who's in his 20s that's battling cancer. And I've watched that man um, put on display the glory of God in his life in the midst of that. And I know that that young man, as he works through that, he's going to be of greater comfort. He's going to have a sense of wisdom, which he already does, has a sense of wisdom and character that otherwise he wouldn't have, that he's going to be able to minister to others in difficulties that otherwise he would never be able to really relate or understand. Isn't that amazing? That's why it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, actually 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, God is a father of compassion, a God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can in turn comfort others with the same comfort that we've received. Some of you have gone through difficulties. You're going through difficulties now, and I will guarantee you, don't withdraw from community. People need to see how you get through those things, and that your life can be a source of hope for others. And as you get further down the road, you can look back and help others that are going through that same thing. The Bible also tells us that uh, another verse here, Ephesians 2.10 I love that. It's, it's just that he says that you were created in Christ Jesus. You are God's workmanship. Created unto Christ Jesus, unto good works. The word workmanship, the Greek word is poema, where we get our word poem. And what he's saying is that God is so working in your life that he wants you to be kind of poetry for God. That, that people would look at your life, they would read your life, and they would be attracted to God through your life. Workmanship, craftsmanship, uh, it puts a whole new meaning behind the phrase, you're a piece of work, doesn't it? But it's just kind of like, you're a piece of work. You know, you are, you are. You're an amazing piece of work in God's hands. Ah, when you look at your life and how he's shaping you, he's doing that because he, he's wanting to put on display his glory through your life. And it's in that, that's where you're going to find your greatest satisfaction. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, I look back here a gal that, man, I've seen the glory of God in her life as she's battled cancer and the difficulties in her life and the issues of her life. It's amazing, and that's, and that's that idea. You have been put on earth to know God and to make Him known through this unique, one-of-a-kind, original contribution. You're not here just to consume resources, but to make a contribution. And only you, only you can be you. And no one else on earth will ever be able to play the role that God has planned for you. If you don't make your unique one-of-a-kind contribution to the body of Christ, it won't be made. God has so shaped you that there are some hands that only you can hold. There are some hearts that only you can heal. There are some needs that only you can meet. 
that's part of that idea here. Here's the next one. Spiritual disciplines increase our capacity to experience the presence of God. This is what I got from the second verse. Did you notice while they were worshiping the Lord in fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke, the Holy Spirit said. So spiritual disciplines increase our capacity to experience the presence of God. The word worship here is an interesting word. It means while they were worshiping, to serve at your own cost. So it's more than just what we just did through our song, worshiping. I'm worshiping as I'm proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're worshiping as you're listening and and maybe even taking notes and taking it to heart. You worship by putting money in the box. You worship when you get involved with our youth and help out there. You worship by opening your home to a small group. That's all worship. That's what he's saying. When you serve Christ at your own cost. So as they were involved in ministry and fasting. Fasting means to abstain from food or drink. But you could fast a lot of things. See, this is what happens when you encounter Christ. You begin to look at your life and begin to see those things that interfere with your ability to see Christ more clearly. So you begin to fast those things. Or you, it could be just that, man, I've been watching too much TV. I listen to too much radio, too much talk radio. It's just, it's driving me crazy. I need to cut that out, whatever it is, so that you can focus more on God. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but sometimes those things in our lives begin to dominate our lives. And so fasting is what you do to, so that you can hear God. That's what they were doing. And they heard, they heard God. They heard God. Uh, and the Bible talks a lot about these spiritual disciplines. You guys know what spiritual disciplines are, don't you? When we talk about it, we've talked about them a lot here. You guys are doing a spiritual discipline right now by sitting here, coming to church. That's a spiritual discipline. There's a lot of different spiritual disciplines. Reading the Bible, praying, meditating, reflecting, studying, all these different things that we do. C.S. Lewis says it's in the process of being worshipped that God communicates His presence. Me being an old Pentecostal boy coming back from a Pentecostal background, one of my favorite verses was always Psalm 22.3. God inhabits the praises of His people. How many are familiar with that verse? It's a, it's a good one. God inhabits the praises of His people? Yeah. And while you were worshiping earlier here during that time of song, God's here. While we're studying the Bible together, God's here. He dwells in our hearts as we praise Him and as we want to get to know Him more. He manifests Himself to us in that context. That's what we see happening in these first few verses. And just as athletes have exercise disciplines and scholars have academic disciplines, Christians have spiritual disciplines. Why? Why are you here? Why would you practice disciplines? I tell you why I do it. And I didn't always do it for this reason, but, but I do it now for this reason. Once you've tasted of his presence, his absence is unbearable. You want more and more. And so you practice disciplines uh, because, man, you don't want anything to interfere with your ability to be able to see Christ more clearly. And experience Him in your life. And uh, this might sound really crazy. You might think, well, of course you would do that. You're the pastor. You get paid to study and pray. And uh, I know a lot of pastors that don't study and pray. But I'm telling you what. My favorite thing to do is to spend time with the Lord. And I get lost. I'm talking hours I can spend praying and studying. And I got lost because guess what? My wife wasn't home yesterday. And I got lost. She usually reels me in a little bit, which is really good. And I appreciate her doing that. But she was nowhere to be found. And so I got lost. It was great. It was awesome. I got glimpses of God yesterday. It was just 
It was amazing. Just by studying, meditating, listening to good teaching, and just walking with the Lord throughout the day. That's why you, that's why you practice spiritual disciplines. That's why I practice spiritual disciplines. And it was in this context that God spoke. You want God to speak to you? You want to hear his voice more clearly? It happens as you begin to practice more and more spiritual disciplines. Next point on your notes. If you're a Christian, then you have been called into ministry and missions. Did you notice also in verse 2, he says, Set apart for the work to which I have called them. Who are they talking about here? So the Holy Spirit spoke, said, Set apart uh, Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. That is not unique to Paul and Barnabas. Did you know that that same word applies to you guys here today? God has told me as a pastor, set them apart for the work that I have called them to do. The fourth chapter of Ephesians says that's my primary job. Is to help to equip you, to set you apart, to show you, to help you to get involved in ministry and be a missionary in this world. That's for us. What is uh, ministry about? Ministry is about... Building believers and missions is about reaching seekers. And everyone here, if you have given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've confessed Christ as your Savior and Lord, that that you've been called into ministry and missions, just as soon as you put your faith in Him, you have been called. How does that work? Well, how many are familiar? uh, You guys, how many are familiar with the game of life? Show of hands. Okay, a lot of people have gone through game of life. We've got a a great class right now going on. It's not too late. You you can miss the first couple, but once we get into like the third week, you can't miss any more after that because we get into the 5G process there. Right now, it's the on-deck class, and so we're kind of working through the whole process of how do you know there's a God? Is it rational to believe in Jesus? Is it rational to believe in the Bible? Is it rational to believe in a God who allows suffering? So we're working through some of those, those barriers that keep people from faith in Jesus Christ. But the game of life, we help people go through the 5G process, 5G's, is really uh, is this process of full devotion to Christ because John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. By the way, that's in the context. The first part of that verse says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Great commentary of our day and time. But he says, I have invaded your pathetic plight with my presence to bring fullness of life regardless of whatever's going on in your life. And that fullness of life is a byproduct of the life that is fully devoted to Jesus Christ. That fullness of life is more than a quantity of life. Yeah, we all want to know that when we die, we go to to heaven to be with Him. But it's more than that. It's more than a quantity of life. It's a quality of life in the midst of the difficulties that we face. And so this, this idea of this fullness of life, as we pursue Him, we talk about this 5G process. The first G is a genuine Christian, somebody who's made a commitment to Christ and to a church family. You make that public through water baptism. The second G is a growing Christian, and that's someone who's who's practicing the disciplines. They're learning the disciplines because they want to grow in their relationship with God. They're committed to the disciplines necessary for spiritual growth. And the third G is what? Anybody remember? So you got genuine, growing, giving. So immediately, if you are genuine, you're going to be growing. If you're growing, you're going to be giving. And that's, you're going to begin to get involved because you want to build up the greatest entity of life change on this planet Earth. And that's the local church family. It's about building believers. Not just here, but in your neighborhood. If you come across a believer or at your workplace, your heart is to build them up in the Lord, to live your life in such a way that it would stir up greater appetite within them for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the third G. So genuine growing, giving. Fourth G is going. I'm telling you, this gets a hold of your life. You will proclaim it to the world. 
And that's about reaching seekers. And then the fifth G is for God's glory. You do all of that for God's glory. And I gave you on, the, on your scriptures there just where that's found, both ministry and missions. But let me ask you this question. How do you know you've had an encounter with Jesus Christ? This is what I know, and I see it from cover to cover. You can even go all the way back into the Old Testament. That God never calls you radically in without sending you radically out. He never brings you in to bless you, except that he also sends you out to be a blessing. So here's here's the idea that I'm, I'm wanting for you to understand. Is that if you don't have a strong inner compulsion to want to bear witness of this life-changing relationship you have with the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then you don't have it. And maybe you once did. Maybe you've lost touch. Maybe you're not walking in vital union with Jesus. But, but when you look at the, the first century Christians in the book of Acts, they were propelled inwardly. There was something that got a hold of their life. They couldn't keep quiet. Even in the fourth chapter, he says, we can't help but tell people about what we've seen and heard. You can't keep us quiet. You, you put us to death. Maybe that'll keep us quiet. But then all that did was just kind of fan the flame. There's this, there's something inside of us that we, we just can't help. Listen to what Tim Keller has to say. He says, if Jesus Christ is indeed God who has broken into history and has changed everything and you have encountered him, How can you help but not run out of here telling everyone you come in contact with, Rejoice! He has triumphed over sin, Satan, hell, and the grave. To not take that news out to every person is the ultimate in wickedness because it would be the most radically unloving thing possible. It would be like finding the cure to cancer and keeping it to yourself and, and just maybe a few family members and friends. That's well said. Here's what's interesting also about this text is that, did you notice that the Holy Spirit didn't tell them where or how? He just said, go. (laughs) He didn't like lay out this plan like it was a blueprint plan. And that's how God often works in our lives. It's more of a game plan, not a blueprint. He kind of says, I just want you to go. And it's in the process of going is how he begins to empower you. But if you're not going, you're not going to experience the power of God, nor are you going to begin to hear his voice clearly. I have had some of my best experiences with God ministering to others. In the process of going. And so it's in, in, in going. He just says, hey, I'm going to send them out. Then tell them where. Then tell them when. Then tell them how they're going to do it. That's frightening. That's really kind of the basis of what Desert Breeze has been about. You know, people have often asked me, what's your five-year plan? Five-year plan? We're lucky if we have a two-week plan. Our week-to-week plan is just to keep pointing to Jesus. I just want as many people as possible to see Jesus more clearly. That's our plan. And God has provided for us. He's taken care of us. He continues to lead us and guide us. And, uh, and it's been an exciting ride. It's been an amazing ride. But uh, here's the next point. And we'll knock this out quick and then we'll move on to, through the text. There's a, there's a bunch there in those first few verses. Beware of two extremes, individualism or institutionalism. And this is important for leadership when we're raising up leaders to lead uh, small groups. If you want to lead a small group, you're going to get involved in overseeing others. Uh, you need to come and hang out with us for a season. We want to get to know you. You need to get to know us. You need to go through the game of life. You need to go through our slam class also. 
And then you need to get involved in one of the small groups because it's through that relational context we can begin to see how God has shaped you and see the hand of God in your life and see where you would best fit. It's just a healthy process that we go through. And and the danger is this individualism is Holy Spirit guidance without confirmation. And then institutionalism is confirmation without Holy Spirit guidance. That's a lot of the seminaries can turn out guys that are so-called pastors, but there are many times, not many times, but there are guys out there that I know that don't really have that call in their life. It hasn't been spirit-led in that process. So all of our confirming without the work of the Holy Spirit is, is not good. But if you have the leadership of the Holy Spirit, you need the affirmation of a community of people that see that in you. And, I, and that's, that's part of it. We won't spend a lot of time on that, but personal choice is healthy only in relation to the, to the Spirit and the church. A calling from the Holy Spirit should be followed by... Notice, did you notice what they did when they heard this from the Lord? What was the first thing? Look back on the, on the text there. What was the first thing? I think it's the third verse there. That once the Holy Spirit said, send them out, set them apart, get ready to send, get ready to send them out. What was the next thing they did? They fasted and prayed before they laid hands on them. You guys familiar with what laying hands on are? Besides what happened to me growing up in my home, my parents would lay their hands on me, and it wasn't an anointing of the Holy Spirit. It was another kind of uh, laying on of hands. But this kind of laying on of hands is really kind of an ordination. What they're saying is that we heard from the Holy Spirit, but we're going to pray about this. Yes, we see that, so we confirm that, and now we're going to send them out. See how important that is? That's the reason why if you came to us and you said, hey, we want to pl- I'm going to plant a church, we're going to fast and pray. We're going to talk about that. We're going to work through the process. Let's see if we see that in you. We want to get behind that and support that in you. And that's important to have that. Now, you don't want to get so heavily toward your bureaucracy. So there's this balance that has to be maintained. But you see a, a beautiful balance in these verses. Now, verses 4 through 5. Let's continue reading. Um, and we'll pick up the pace a, a tad. When they arrived... So, so let's, let's go verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. This is John Mark who's assisting them right there. So here's the next point, is that you start right where you are with what is most familiar to you. How'd you get that, Pastor? Right here, verse 5. They start with Barnabas's. You have to actually study to see what region they went into. And this happened to be where Barnabas's home territory was. They went to a place that was familiar to Barnabas. So what is this teaching us? This is what it's teaching us, is that you begin impacting lives for Christ right where you are. You don't have to go out on a mission field. You have a mission field where you work, where you live, in your neighborhood, in your own home, in this church. There is opportunity galore. And that's what he's telling us. Jeremiah 29, uh, 4 through 14, I talked about it a few weeks ago. The nation of Israel is in exile. Jeremiah speaks to the nation through, uh, with God speaking through Jeremiah. And God says to the people, I want you to kind of almost, he's saying, bloom where you're planted. Yeah, you're in a place, you're in exile, you're around a bunch of uh, people that are adversarial somewhat. You've been drug off from your homeland, but I want... I want you to be a blessing to them so that I can continue to bless you and you will point to me through your lives. And those are, the context of that is where we get a couple of verses that we memorize 
I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's in the context of exile. I mean, some of us feel like we're living in exile because of the jobs that we have or, or maybe the neighborhoods we live in. We have some adversarial neighbors. Some of us feel that way even in our own home, in, in our marriages or with our kids, trying to manage them. But he's saying, hey, in that context, as feeling like an exile, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I want to work in your life right there. And there's another verse that we memorize that's also in that same context. It says, um, it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So it's in that context. It's, so you start right where you are. Start right where you are and God will use you and, and bless you. Uh, many of you guys know my uh, career path. That my first uh, career, I've gone through about three careers. And uh, my next one is going to work for Starbucks because you can get free drinks. But uh, I'm just kidding. But uh, I started as a, as a pipe fitter welder. I went through the plumbing and pipe fitters local union 469 went through their apprenticeship program we got a few guys that worked there and then after that after about 10 years there i got on the phoenix fire department i was a, a paramedic firefighter with phoenix fire and then i became a, a pastor so i go from pipe fitter paramedic pastor pilot uh, no i don't think so uh, probably this will be it but let, let me just say something about calling and significance uh I, I felt no less significant or a sense of calling when I was a pipe fitter or paramedic than, than what I feel now. The same significance and calling that I have now, I felt in, in those settings. I, I felt that I was on mission for God. I was involved in ministry no matter where I went, whatever I did, that God was going to use my life. Uh, anybody watch the Cardinal games last night? Anybody watch that? Woo! Yeah, football. It's back. You guys aren't as happy as I am. I like football, but I love Jesus more. I mean, and it's obvious. But but here's the interesting. Did you guys watch, anybody watch the pregame? And they had a guy on there, O'Brien Schofield. His testimony. Did you guys watch his testimony? And here's this guy, uh, O'Brien Schofield. He basically said, and he's an outside linebacker defensive player for the cardinals and he goes god is really important to me and so everything i do i do for his glory and show him show him sacking quarterback stuff like that and i just go i love it i love it a guy that sacks quarterbacks for the glory of god (laughs) yeah yeah you know here's the deal Here's the interesting thing about that, that if, if he's legit and God is at the center of his life, even if he gets a career-ending injury and he's sidelined, he will still do that for the glory of God. Because his identity is not attached to his performance, but it's attached to, if he really understands Christianity, it's tied to the performance of Jesus and his identity and his significance and security and acceptance is already established. So it's out of that, out of that he plays football. So if the football game, for some reason, he gets cut from the team, it doesn't matter. He can still live for God's glory. So no matter where God has taken you, you can do it for God's glory. 
And God is most glorified in us. We're most satisfied in Him. Verses 12 through, or 6 through 12, let me continue reading here. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus, and he was with the proconsul uh, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Check this out. This is good. <laughs> but Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. You got to use that kind of. Ugh. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I love that. That's my kind of ministry. That's my kind of preaching. Someone disagrees with you and they go blind. <laughs> Don't disagree with me. Okay, this was kind of an isolated case, certainly. Because Paul doesn't do that anymore after that. Evidently, God and the Holy Spirit was on him and he felt like he needed to do that. By the way, it's, here's the next point. It's on your notes. Uh, don't be surprised by the opposition. By opposition, because life is more of a battleground than a playground. The enemy is going to do everything he can to keep you to keep you off your game from genuine, growing, giving, going, all for God's glory. He's going to do everything he can to keep you out of that. That you will just go through the motions, you'll punch the clock, and you're not going to know that you're not there to be on ministry and mission. You're there to to help build believers if there's any around you, and to and to reach seekers. And you have an adversary. By the way, the worst position to be is in defense mode. Your best defense is a good offense. Kick down the gates of hell. That's what Paul's doing. Get out of the way. Sometimes when you're praying for someone, you want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's major spiritual warfare going on. Because it tells us in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. It also tells us in, in 2 Corinthians eleven three that he's trying to lead astray our minds from our sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. So he'll do whatever he can to interfere with that. And sometimes, sometimes I've even done this. I've told people to butt out of other people's lives because they're dragging them down spiritually. I've told some people say, you need to stay away from this person. You need to fill your life up with these type of people because this is what's going to help you. So you've got to get a little bit of an idea here what Paul's doing. He's just saying, dude, back off. This guy's going to come to faith in Jesus and you're interfering with it. By the way, it tells us in the 18th chapter of Matthew, Jesus was saying that if anyone causes a little one to stumble, if anyone causes anyone and runs interference to keep anyone from coming to faith in Jesus, he says some pretty harsh words. He says, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their head and thrown into a deep sea. That's pretty serious stuff. You do not want to run on the wrong team, on the wrong side, and be a part of this interference that would keep people from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We want to do everything we can to stir up greater appetite. 
within others for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verses 14 through 16. Let me, let me kind of wrap through this. This will knock out quick, actually. Because I'm going to summarize a big section of this. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up. I could just see him kind of rubbing his hands. All right. Perfect opportunity. Stood up motioning with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And so let me take you kind of through this. This is what he does. He begins with material that they're familiar with, the Old Testament. He starts with the bondage in Egypt, their deliverance, their pursuit of a king through Samuel, Saul, David. He talks about the the prophets, and then he goes to John the Baptist. He covers 2,000 years of history and says at every point, all the people in every time were waiting for the Messiah to come. And here's the point that we get from that section of Scripture. That's verses 17 through 37. If you've ever said this, if you've ever said, there's got to be more to life than this. If you've ever said, when are things going to ever get better? If you've ever said, oh my goodness, what, what is going to change the downward trajectory of individual lives and marriages and families and whole communities? See, what he's pointing to here, this is what Paul is doing. He's pointing to the answer The root of our problems is sin, our tendency to take God's place. The answer is Jesus, who came to this earth and took our place on the cross and gives us fullness of life. That's what he's saying. Look at verses uh, 38, 39. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. He's talking about Jesus. See, there was this this chasm, this eternal chasm that separated us from God. No wonder our lives are jacked up. We're disconnected from God. But Jesus came in and rescued us and built a bridge. And he forgives us of our sins. Oh, my goodness. You can have access to God. Not based on what you've done, but on what Jesus has done. And he goes on, verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses, you could almost just say, by your own works. Or you could also say, by self-help. Or by politics. Or by courts in the Congress of our, of our society. Or, or even education. I mean, I, I think all of those are important. But the deepest need is that we need, we need Jesus. The answer is Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. There's, there's an interesting place in Mark 137 where it was one of Jesus' most, his busiest ministry days. And he, uh, he, so he gets up early in the morning and he withdraws to a lonely place to pray. And the disciples eventually kind of wait, wipe the sleepy out of their eye and kind of try to find him. And they come chasing out there and they go, this is what they say. Jesus, Jesus, where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. And it's interesting. It's a time when Jesus has some really good boundaries. And he says, okay, I understand that, but I need to, we need to move on to another place. 
And that statement is very profound because whether you know it or not, everyone is looking for Jesus. Whether you know it or not, you're looking for Jesus. And if you don't find Jesus, or better yet, if he doesn't find you, you're going to make something or someone else your Jesus. You're going to make something or someone else your joy, your peace, your purpose in life. Listen, it's not found in a, in a marriage relationship. I love marriage. I do. I love my wife. I miss her this weekend. There's no doubt about it. But she's not my Jesus, nor are my kids, nor is this job. My identity's not here. My identity's in Jesus. And out of that overflow, then I'm able to minister to my wife and to my kids in here. Does that make sense? If I make this my identity, when this is doing bad, so is my identity. If it's doing good, then I'm kind of filled with pride. Not only that, I become a bit coercive and manipulative to people because they become my trophies. Does that make sense? That's so important for us to understand because it's not, we don't build our lives on, the, on our performance, not based on that. He's already performed for us, therefore we have identity. And it's out of that identity, then we do life. C.S. Lewis, in another place, he said, If I have the desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the explanation, I was made for another world. Yes, yes, for him. Next point on your notes, the gospel. And this is really what he says. We're going to get into it more next week because we're going to talk about how to share your faith. We're going to talk about the gospel message. The gospel is intellectually sound. And that's what you see Paul constantly bringing back. He's showing it that it's historical, it's factual, it's evidential, but it's existentially satisfying. Entered into by faith in Jesus Christ. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel message? Here it is in a nutshell. You are a sinner saved by Jesus' works and not your own works. That's, that's the gospel message and it's unbelievably freeing. Let me wrap it up, this last section here in... Uh, and so they come back, they present the gospel more, the whole town turns out, but the, but the Jews turn against them. In fact, move all the way to verse 50. We're going to wrap it up right here. And I want you to see their response, verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. What does that mean? Their identity wasn't wrapped up in the, in the response of these people. They ran them out of town. But notice the next verse. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You build your identity on anything other than Jesus, it's just a matter of time. You're going to crash and burn. See, their identity wasn't built in their performance or how many people come to faith or any of these things. It was built on the cross. Therefore, even in the midst of persecution, they were able to be filled with the Holy Spirit and experience unbelievable joy. I love it. Here's your last point. The best way to run this amazing race is to put God on display by showing your deep satisfaction in Him regardless of what goes down in your life. Regardless of what's going down. See, it's not about you. It's not about your plan. It's about His plan. And He may lead you in a lot of different places. He may place you in jobs and circumstances and in neighborhoods, but He's sent you there on mission to proclaim His name, to put on display the glory of Jesus Christ. That's unbelievably important. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. We're going to invite the band up. They're going to lead us in this song.
It's one of my favorite songs. It's called Ruin Me. <laughs> it's, a, it's a song that talks about, it's not about my plans, it's about his plans. But when I get a glimpse, when I get a glimpse of his glory, my plans don't matter. What matters most is that I see more of him and I, and I put on display more of him. So as we bow our heads, we close our eyes, we, we prepare our hearts. God, we thank you for your, your teaching us this morning. Thank you for stirring us. And God, I pray that everybody here, whether, whether you are a builder, a banker, a baker, candlestick maker, it doesn't matter. God is at work all over the world filling his followers with his presence to redeem and fix this broken place. God, let us see the reality of that. That we are, that we are created to join you, God, in ministry and missions, building believers, reaching seekers, God, you, you meant for us to lay our head on the pillow at night and be able to say, say to ourselves, you know what I did today? I teamed up with God to change the world. I can't believe I get to do this as the response of those who are building believers and reaching seekers for God's glory. God, let us uh, begin to see more clearly all that you have done for us on the cross. And that may that, so get a hold of our hearts, it propel us out into our homes, our neighborhoods, our places of work. And God, give us the courage to boldly proclaim this life-changing message of your Son, our Savior, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? Hey, make this song your prayer. You ready? Let's do it. See
May God utterly destroy the things in your life that you put before him. Amen? Hey, good to see you guys. God bless you. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.